Uh, this morning, we want to look at a passage or at a portion of Scripture that helps us uh, and helps pave the way for us to understand um, Jesus Christ when He was sent uh, upon the earth. And the portion of Scripture that we are turning to is the book of 1 Samuel. Today, we are beginning a new sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel. And before we get uh, to look at each of the chapters of this book, uh, we want to spend some time considering the entire story. Have you heard the phrase, don't miss the forest for the trees? Uh, The book of 1 Samuel has some amazing stories in it, like the story of David and Goliath, or the stories when David chose not to harm uh, Saul, even though Saul was seeking and pursuing to kill David. Uh, We are going to see some great stories in the book of 1 Samuel, but we can be so focused on each of those stories of the book that we can miss the overarching message of the entire book. So this morning, before we begin a sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel, today's message is a is an overview sermon. It's a little different than, than our typical sermons. Uh, the historical context of the book, if we're going to understand this book well, it's helpful to understand the time uh, in which the events that it describes uh, have taken place. Uh, the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, starts at a time in history um, that is similar to the time of the judges mentioned uh, in the book of Judges. Uh, particularly the last judge in the book of Judges mentioned was Samson. Now, how do we know that the book of Samuel starts at the same time as Samson was around? Uh, Remember that when Samson um, went uh, and uh, he was killed in the temple of the Philistines, he was was killed in the temple of, of Dagon. And when he was killed, he was killed because he destroyed the temple of Dagon along with 3,000 Philistines. But in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, the ark of God is captured and taken into the temple of the Dagon. Uh, So it's very likely that the events of the first chapters of the book of 1 Samuel actually overlap with the ending of the book of Judges. Now, the last two Sundays, Pastor Taylor preached on the last five chapters of the book of Judges, which uh, these chapters functioned like, a, like an appendix to the story of the Judges. In those five chapters, we saw the tragic effect of what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. In those five chapters of Judges, uh, we were introduced not only to the phrase, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, but there's another phrase that we were introduced to, and it only appears in the last five chapters of Judges, and it's a phrase, there is no king in Israel. Would you just turn with me to the book of First Samuel? And First Samuel, if you don't have a Bible, if you're using one of the Bibles in the, in, in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 225. And when you find First Samuel, just turn back a few pages to Judges, chapter 17. 
and then 18, and then 19, and then 21. And I'm, we're going to just look at this phrase that shows up in Judges because it's a historical context to understand what's going on in 1 Samuel. In Judges 17, verse 6, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's after introducing the story of Micah, the Levite. Then in chapter 18, uh, verse 1, here's how chapter 18 of Judges begins. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And move to chapter 19. Look at how 19 begins. Chapter 19 of Judges, that begins a story of the Levite and his concubine, that gruesome story of the book of Judges. Here's how that chapter begins. In those days, when there was no king in Israel. And look at how the last verse of the book of Judges. Judges 21, 25. Here's how the book closes. Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Friends, do you hear the, the tone? Do you, do you hear the, the longing? Do you hear the, the, the common uh, characteristic of the time of the judges? There was no king in Israel at that time. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. It's in this historical context that we see the events that begin in, this, in the book of 1 Samuel. And one way to get an overview of the entire book, uh, of, a, of any book of the Bible, is to consider how the book begins and how it ends. It starts in chapters 1 and 2. And by the way, we're, we're not going to read all 31 chapters of the book of 1 Samuel, just in case you were wondering. We're going to take a quick overview of the entire book. So I'm, I'm going to mention some chapters and summarize them for us. Uh, the book of 1 Samuel starts in first in, in, with the first and second chapter with the prayer of a barren wife, Hannah, who asks God for a child. And God answers her prayer and gives her a male child so that she utters, at the end of that, she utters a prayer of praise. And Hannah's prayer of praise is mentioned in, in chapter 2. And, and, and her prayer of praise captures some of the big themes of this book. But notice how her prayer ends in chapter 2, verse 10. Hannah's prayer of praise and thanksgiving ends with this phrase. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Now, it's amazing. At the time that Hannah wrote, uh, uttered this prayer, there is no king in Israel. There is not even the, the sort of the, the candidate is on the horizon. There's, there's none of that. It's more like everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And yet Hannah introduces this note, this prophetic word, that God will give strength to his king and exalt his power, the power of his anointed. Way before Israel got the first king and, 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 and saw God's redemption through the king, Hannah speaks a future, of a future king who will have the strength from God. This means that at the very beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, we see the anticipation and the confidence and the yearning 
that God will bring a king to rule over his people. And through this king, God will exercise his divine power. But notice how the book ends. If this is how the book starts in chapters 1 and 2 with Hannah's prayer, introducing the theme and the, the hope of, of a king, notice how the book of 1 Samuel ends. Turn to the final chapter, chapter 31 of, of the book. In chapter 31, Saul, the first king, whom the people hoped to be leading the battles for the people, Saul is in battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines kill Israel's first king because Saul was under God's judgment for his disobedience, which took place in chapter 13 and chapter 15. So the book of 1 Samuel closes with this message that just having any kind of king is not the solution to the chaos of God's people. Instead, the solution to the chaos of God's people is having a king after God's own heart. And halfway through the book, in chapter 16, we find out that after God deposes and rejects Saul, God introduces a new king, a king after God's own heart. And that king is not Saul, but David. So we can summarize the book of 1 Samuel in this way. From chaos, from the chaos of self-rule, to the king after God's own heart. From the chaos of self-rule, to the king after God's own heart. The book of 1 Samuel presents us the, the transition from the, from the time of the judges to the establishment of a king in Israel. And not just any kind of king, but a king who would follow God's own heart. And the book of 1 Samuel could be divided in three major sections. Now, I am not making this up. It's not like you need to have three points of a sermon, so I'm going to divide up the book of Samuel in three parts. No. The book of Samuel has three acts, and therefore it just lends itself nicely to a three-point uh, overview sermon. But these three sections um, act as and tell us the story of how God takes a nation being ruled by judges, uh, corrupt priests, and turns it to establish it and, and set on it uh, a king after his own heart. What are the three acts? And the book of Samuel is divided in these three ways. Um, first, the first section, chapters 1 through 7, God judges and provides a faithful priest. God judges and provides a faithful priest. The second major section of the book is from chapters 8 to chapter 15. God is rejected by his people and by their first king. God is rejected by his people and by their first king. And the third part of the book, from chapter 16 to chapter 31, we see God, God provides another faithful king. God provides another faithful king. Or another king who is faithful. Let's look at these uh, three acts in the book of 1 Samuel. God judges and provides a faithful priest. After God answers Hannah's prayer and gives her a son, the story moves to tell us about 
the corrupt worship that was taking place at Shiloh. When Pastor Taylor was preaching a few weeks ago and described to us the corrupt worship that was described in the last few chapters of the book of Judges, uh, he described how people were just doing what was right in their own eyes, even in the area of worship. People were setting up their own little worship places in their own houses and do things the way they wanted to, as opposed to going to Shiloh, where God's tent was. Well, the book of 1 Samuel tells us that the corruption of worship was not just happening throughout the land, it was also happening at Shiloh. Eli's sons, Eli was the, the, the priest at that time, Eli's sons, the associate priests with him, dishonored God and defiled God through how they carried out their priestly role. They stole from the sacrifices that were brought to God's tent. No wonder the people of God were in such a mess. The priests themselves were a big mess. But God would not allow himself to be dishonored forever. He brought upon Eli's household. He brought doom. He killed Eli's sons. And and the the family of Eli uh, was taken away from the role of, of being priests any longer. And the entire people of Israel were defeated. Yet God promised to raise up for himself a faithful priest. And this promise happens already in chapter 2 of Samuel. Chapter 2, if you look at verses 33 to 35, God sends a messenger to give the following message to Eli. Look at 1 Samuel 2, 33 to 35. here's, Here's what the messenger from God tells the priest of God. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. A message of judgment and a message of restoration. God promised to bring doom to Eli's house, to his priesthood, and instead God promised to raise up for himself another priest, a faithful one. And the characteristics of that faithful priest is that he will do according to what is in God's heart and mind. He won't do according to what is right in his own eyes. He won't do what is right in the people's eyes. He will do what is right in God's eyes. An incredible characteristic of any priest who would want to be given the the accolade or the, the evaluation by God, a faithful priest. In chapter 3, we have the story of God revealing himself to Samuel. And repeating the message of judgment against Eli's house through the boy Samuel. In chapter 4, God does exactly what he promised in chapter 2. God kills Eli's two sons in battle. And the ark of God is captured by the Philistines. And when Eli hears the news that, that the, ca- the ark was captured and his sons died, he falls down and dies himself. When Eli's daughter-in-law hears the news about the ark... And about the death of her husband, 
she went into labor because she was pregnant. And in the process of giving birth, she too dies. But before she dies, she calls her son Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. The glory of God has departed. What a way to name your child forever. Whenever that child will be called, it'll be a remembrance when the glory has departed. Now, this is a time in which Samuel grew up, in a time when the glory of God had departed from the people of God because of the corruption of the priesthood and because of the idolatry of the entire people of God. As we have seen in the book of Judges, God let the symbol of his presence and of his glory be taken away from his people. And that defeat also symbolized the end of Shiloh as a place for God's tent. The ark will not come back to Shiloh ever again. And the ark will not have a permanent place in Israel until 2 Samuel chapter 6, when the true king, a king that is after God's own heart, will come on the throne and he will be concerned for the ark of God. In chapter 5 and 6 of 1 Samuel, God shows his people that he can, care, he can bring plagues against the Philistines even after his people have been defeated and humiliated. Their defeat and humiliation does not mean that God is at the end of his power to work and to, to redeem. If only God's people would trust in God even in their humiliation and defeat. Chapter 6 closes with the ark of God being returned from its captivity. But the return presence of God and of the ark, or the presence of God through the ark, is not a safe experience for the people of God. When they see the ark, at first they rejoice, but they treat it superficially and look inside the ark, even though God commanded against such a practice. So God killed 70 of the Israelites when the ark was brought back. In chapter 7, Samuel is affirmed as judge of Israel, and he calls the people of God to repent of their idols and to turn to the Lord with their whole hearts. And then a great battle takes place in chapter 7, in which God drives out the Philistines, even though Samuel was not a military commander. The victory of Ebenezer was so great that the Philistines did not attack Israel during Samuel's leadership. That's how bad they lost. Samuel's ministry as a faithful priest who acts in accordance with God's heart is seen in this overarching theme that God's faithful priests call God's people to turn away from their idols and follow God wholeheartedly. This was, this was the mantra of Samuel's ministry as a priest. God's temporal judgments of his people show that God does not leave sin unpunished as God punished the house of Eli. But their defeat, the defeat of the people of God, does not mean that God's cause is defeated. And that's important for us to realize. The defeat of God's people does not mean that the cause of God's people is defeated. God remains God even in the defeat of his people. Friends, consider God's faithfulness and mercy to provide such a faithful priest as, as a young boy Samuel in the midst of such a dark time of rebellion as we have seen in the book of Judges and in the first two chapters of the book of, of Samuel. 
God is able to raise up the person he needs to carry on God's plan. And to be a faithful priest involves calling God's people to turn away from the idols and follow God wholeheartedly. Friend, I wonder if there are idols that God is calling you to turn away from today. I wonder if there's areas of your life that you are not serving God wholeheartedly with. God is calling you today through a ministry just like Samuel who did call his, God's people to faithfulness. I wonder if there's idols in your own heart that you're clinging to. Or areas of your own heart that you're not letting God take charge of that area. So you're not serving the Lord wholeheartedly. The story of Samuel, his rise to leadership as a judge, is, it has this mantra, calling people to turn away to God, to turn away from their sin to God. But the story for Samuel continues. Even though the people of God, in chapter 7, turned away from their idols, sometime later, quite some time later, they bring a request to Samuel by which they are rejecting God. And this is the second act in the story of the book of 1 Samuel. The second point of our sermon is God is rejected by his people and by their first king. Uh, the history of Israel comes to a major shift, even during Samuel's judgeship, when the people approach Samuel and ask him to put a king over them so they can be like the nations. We see this in chapter 8. They say to Samuel in chapter 8, verse 5, Behold, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now it's important to remember in the storyline of the Bible that God had planned long ago to set a king over his people. We know that if we look, just go back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. You know how the, the book of Genesis ends? There's a, there's a list of blessings that... Jacob gives to his sons before Jacob dies. And here's one of the blessings in, chap, in Genesis 49, 10. Here's what, how, how Jacob blesses Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The scepter refers to to the rule of a king. Jacob prophesied that a king will come out of Judah. We move ahead a few, a few books, the book of Numbers. Uh, even though we're a few books away from Genesis, uh, time-wise, chronology, we're not very far um, from, from the story. Um, Numbers 24, Israel is now out of Egypt, out of the slavery to Egypt. And we see the following message given by Balaam, he gave this prophecy in Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. This prophecy was uttered shortly after Israel came out of Egypt. God's long-term plan was to raise up a king, an anointed one who would rule over God's people and subdue their enemies. Uh, we see when God gave the law to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, God made provisions 
and spoke about the future king. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. God gave Moses laws about how the king would rule over God's people. The issue was not merely a desire for a king, but the motivation behind that desire. The motivation was to have a king like the nations. So in 1 Samuel 8, 5, the people say, Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. The sinful motivations of God's people are exposed again in chapter 8, verses 19 through 20. In 1 Samuel 8, 19 and 20, But the people refused to obey the voice of, God, of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The people want a king who would look like an earthly king for the security and the victories in their battles. A king like the nation's king. And in wanting to be like the nations, the people of God have rejected God's rule over them. It was not wrong to desire a king, but the motivations that spoiled that desire for a king were deeply flawed. So God grants him a king. God grants him a king like the nations. God gives him a king that is tall and handsome. A king that has all the physical appearances of a man who can, who can be successful and bring success to God's people. And we see this in chapters 9 and 10 of the book of 1 Samuel. Saul has the characteristics of a successful king. Saul begins with some promising steps. He defeats the Ammonites in battle in chapter 12. But Saul's kingship quickly turns in a wrong direction as early as, it, as the next chapter, chapter 13, when he disobeys the command of the Lord and fails to wait for Samuel to come to bring sacrifices to the Lord before going into battle. And, and Saul does a sacrifice on his own, even though it was, he was going against God's instruction. Saul wants to fight off the enemies on his terms rather than God's terms. In chapter 15, God commanded Saul to uh, exterminate, to completely eradicate the Amalekites and to eradicate their possessions entirely. But what does Saul do? He disobeys God's orders and he keeps some of the spoil for himself. So Samuel brings this message from God. In chapter 15, verse 26. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. It's amazing. Disobedience brings a disqualification to be a, a king over God's people. In 1 Samuel tells us that it's not sufficient merely to have just any kind of king. What God's people need is a king who would obey God's word. Because through an obedient king... God reigns, con continues to reign over his people. It is as a king obeys the word of God that God continues to reign over his people. But Saul rejected God's word and wanted to be king based on his terms rather than on God's terms. But to our big surprise, Saul remains on the throne for another 15 chapters in this book which covers several more decades of his kingship. He reigns as king, even though God has rejected his kingship. 
And his death is a violent death. And a violent death not only for himself, but for the people of God. It is not a coincidence that 1 Samuel closes with Saul failing to provide the security and the victory that the people had put their hopes in that king. Remember why the Israelites wanted a king? To be like the nation so that he can lead them in battle. And here at the end of the book, they got... They got the king they wanted, like the nations. But the result of wanting a king like the nations is not what they were planning for. They got defeated. And the king they had put their hopes in was killed by the very nations he was supposed to overcome. Friends, taking the path of rejecting God and acting contrary to his word always leads to death. There's no long-term security in the path of walking contrary to the Word of God. So, friend, ask yourself, where are you looking for the solutions to the mess that you encounter in your life? Or to the mess that you see in this world? Are you looking to worldly solutions? Do you want to rule your life like the world around us? Today, the world around us thinks that the best kind of rule... The best kind of king is self-rule, self-king, independence. Do what you want. Our world goes by what strikes the eye, by what's physically apparent as strong and powerful. But the book of Samuel helps us see that God can win battles for his people even without a king like the nations. Even with a prophet who is not a military leader, If only God's people would obey God's word and turn away from their idols. Friends, think how easy it is for us as a church to look at the world around us and want to govern ourselves as a church based on the world-based values. To choose pastors or elders based on worldly values. I I praise God for the growth that we are seeing in this congregation uh, when it comes to the criteria for looking at Elders who should be pastoring and shepherding this congregation? Do we want pastors or elders who would take the place of God in, our, in, in this church? No way. Do we want pastors or elders in whom we put our, our faith in, as opposed to putting our faith in the Lord? No way. I praise God that the pastors and elders of this congregation have their hearts committed to the Lord and to follow the Lord and to please the Lord and the word of the Lord in all that the Lord has revealed, even when such things may not be pleasing to everybody. Praise God for that. That is a sign of growth in the life of this congregation. But if you're, if you're a Christian, ask yourself if your desires are shaped by deeper motivations of living or being like the nations around us. Friends, such motivations spoil even the good desires of our hearts. But the third major section of the book of Samuel closes on another major point of this book. If the book started in a mess, in the middle of the book, the book becomes a mess. And at the end of the book, the, end, the book ends in a mess. But in the middle of it, in the middle of a mess that has transpired with Saul, God is faithful yet once again. He provided a faithful priest when the house of Eli was corrupted. 
And halfway through the book of 1 Samuel, God is faithful again and provides another king. This time, a faithful one. God provides another king, a faithful one. That's a third point of the book of 1 Samuel. If God rejected Saul, who will God raise up in his place? What will God's faithful king look like if Saul ended up not being the right kind of king? The king like the nations. What will be the faithful king like? And we see three characteristics in this, the last part of the book of Samuel about the kind of king that is faithful to the Lord. Three characteristics. And the rest in these characteristics, we see a contrast between King David and King Saul. The first characteristic, he's not chosen by human expectations. He's not chosen by human expectations. In chapter 16, God sent Samuel to the house of Jesse to choose from one of his sons, a new king. And God has to teach not only Jesse, but even Samuel, an important lesson that God is not looking at the outward appearance, but at the heart. Jesse brings his seven sons, and not one of them is chosen by God. And, and, God has, and Samuel has to ask Jesse, is this all you have? There's an eighth son. He was not even called to show up among the seven sons of Jesse. That's how, that's how un, unthinkable he was as a candidate. Yet God is choosing David, a shepherd boy. And God defies the expectations of what it looks like to look for a, a successful king. God is choosing the least likely candidate of Jesse's sons. The eighth son whom Jesse did not even call at first. God chose a shepherd boy with no military training. And the king God will choose in this book will be on a different criteria than the kind of king that the people have looked for in Saul. The problem with the people of Israel at the time is that they wanted a king to be like the nations. And here God is choosing a king that would not qualify as a king among the nation's eyes. A second characteristic, he wins against an impossible enemy. He wins against an impossible enemy. The very next chapter, the shepherd boy, David, after he was anointed as king, we see the story of, of a battle, perhaps the most prominent battle in the book of First Samuel. The battle against Goliath. That battle is not won by tall Saul. That battle is won not with the armor of Saul. That battle is won by the shepherd boy, David. He is the one who ends up taking on Goliath. Not Saul, the king who was supposed to protect the people. It's David. In contrast between, the contrast between David and Saul as winning battles comes to a climax in chapter 30 and 31. If in chapter 31, they, same, uh, uh, Saul is killed by the Philistines, in chapter 30, David is a fugitive and yet conquers the Amalekites, the very people Saul was supposed to exterminate. One of the messages of 1 Samuel is that a king who does not obey God offers his people no security. But a king who defies human expectations, and yet it's God's choice of a king 
wins against impossible enemies. And then there's a third characteristic of the king God chooses, of the faithful king. Here's the third characteristic of the faithful king God chooses. He is persecuted as he waits for the time when God will give him the kingdom. A big emphasis of chapters 16 to 31 is that the new king God chooses in the place of Saul does not get the kingdom right away. Remember, Saul continues to reign for another 15 chapters. Saul, the disobedient and rejecting king, continues to reign for a few more decades of his life. And when Saul realizes that God is giving another person the victories, Saul begins his attempts to take out God's anointed king. Before God's anointed king receives a kingdom from God, he's being persecuted without any wrong that David had committed against Saul. So the, second, the last part of 1 Samuel, we see the, the, the pursuit of Saul against David. In all this, David becomes a pattern of Christ in his suffering as David was persecuted by Saul. It is David, not Saul, who is representative of Christ. As one author put it so well, Saul's right, Saul's rise and fall is like an expanded retelling of the story of Adam. And if Saul was like the first Adam, David was a type of the last Adam, called to replace the fallen king as the head of, the, of God's people, persecuted without cause by his rival, waiting patiently until the Lord gave him the kingdom. Friends, David in this last part of the book is indeed a persecuted king before he actually takes the throne of the kingdom that God promised him. God's faithful king is chosen not on, God, not on human criteria, but on God's criteria. He's contrasted with a disobedient king in that he is able to free people from their enemies, unlike King Saul. And he defies human expectations because he's persecuted as he waits for God to give him the kingdom. So friends, the, first, the book of 1 Samuel tells us a story of, of the life of God's people living in rebellion without a king and tells us how that changed and how that evolved to get to a place where God's people will finally have over them a king who would rule over them according to God's own heart. But the security for God's people comes not for, from a king like the nations, but from a shepherd boy who lives according to God's own heart, obeying and trusting in God. Yet, if we look at the story of 1 Samuel, we must realize that 1 Samuel is just half of the story of Samuel. In the Hebrew Bible, we don't have a division between 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, the only reason why we have a division between First and Second Samuel, it used to be in the Hebrew, all one book. The reason why now they're divided is because um, they translated the Hebrew into Greek very early on. And when they translated the Old Testament Hebrew into the Greek language, the Greek had many more words than the Hebrew. So it just didn't fit in one scroll. So they had to put it in two scrolls. That's why we have First, King, First Samuel and, and Second Samuel. 
But the story of 1 Samuel doesn't end with, a, with, with, the, with the end of 1 Samuel. It keeps going into 2 Samuel. And if we go into 2 Samuel, we, we read not only that, that David does take on the throne and the kingdom, that David brings back the ark of God's, uh, of God's presence, but we also read that David, even though he was a man after God's own heart, he too was an imperfect king. He too has, has fallen in sin and rebellion. And David, in, in the book of Second Samuel, we realize and find out that he committed adultery with Bathsheba, that he murdered Bathsheba's husband. And at the end of Second Samuel, David takes a census to count his army. It was a sign of trusting in his military power, a gimmick just like the nations do, rather than trusting in God. So God punishes David. But in the process, David pleads with God and prefers to take upon himself the punishment instead of seeing the people perish. So the story of King David, even though he seems so, so good in, in the book of 1 Samuel, if we read the rest of 2 Samuel, we realize that King David is not the ultimate perfect king that God promised over his people. The ultimate perfect king that God promised over his people is not David, but Jesus. He was the one that David foreshadowed, that the, the sufferings of David foreshadowed. When Jesus was on the cross, he, he uttered words that David had uttered to God when he was persecuted and suffered. It is Christ, not David, that we put our ultimate hope in. It is through Christ as the coming king that we actually have hope of having all our enemies defeated. The greatest of, of those enemies being not our finances, not our failed dreams, not our poverty or relationships, Ultimate, the ultimate enemies that King Jesus came to defeat was sin and death. Only he was able to defeat it. So friends, when we look at the book of 1 Samuel, we are told about the kind of king that God wants to have over his people. A king who would be devoted and have God's heart. But that king, as much as David is the foreshadow and a good example for a while, that king is ultimately Jesus. So 1 Samuel helps us and prepares us for the coming of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who is merciful towards your people, even when your people have been floundering in rebellion and sin and idolatry. You have been faithful. You have been gracious to provide a, a priest who has been faithful to you. In Samuel, you've been able, you've been faithful to provide a king who is faithful to you in David. You've been faithful and, and incredibly merciful to provide the ultimate king of all, your only son, Jesus Christ. It is him that we yearn for. It is his kingship and rule that we desire. And it is his rule in our lives that brings healing and hope and restoration. Father, we want to put our hope in Christ and in him alone. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.